Our scripture from today is Titus 3, 9 through 15. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And when Artemis and Tychus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Right, our preschoolers can be dismissed. Uh, I don't think we have a whole trove of them this morning, but go ahead and head out. And uh, let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father in heaven, uh, There is nothing that we have that we have not received. Everything is a gift from your hands. We love you and we praise you as we've spent our time this morning doing. You are greater than our hearts can imagine. You are greater than our minds can conceive. And yet you have come to us. You have shown us grace and love and mercy. Your goodness is overflowing. It is uh, abounding to us who have believed in you. God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would make it effective, that you would use your spirits to uh, help us learn and to help us live these words. God, we thank you that you've spoken, and I pray that we would hear well this morning. I pray that I would speak accurately. I pray that your grace would be evident in this passage. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So I hope you all had a, uh, a happy Thanksgiving. Um, I hope you all enjoyed uh, spending time with your, your family. I um, hope you all enjoyed eating your big meals and uh, having uh, you know, some time to sit back and watch some football games. Um, speaking of which, uh, I think maybe it's just the food, uh, the overeating making me feel ornery, but I do want to share the most controversial, I think, opinion that I've ever given from this pulpit, and it's this. There is just not that much difference between college football teams. There's just not. No, you don't want to hear that, but it's true. At the end of the day, you've got these, everybody has these massive stadiums that hold thousands and thousands of people. Everybody's got their super talented 18 to 22-year-olds. Everybody's got their tired old man who's coaching. Um, Everybody's got their mascot and their sayings. Sure, some of those things can be different. Uh, One team is a red team. One team is a blue team. One team is on the west side of the state. One team is on the east side of the state. One has a... For instance, an elephant is a mascot, and one has a tiger. Everybody's yelling things, you know, they say Roll Tide or War Eagle, just hypothetically. But at the end of the day, there's just not that much difference. It's all just kind of a fiction 
we make up to tell ourselves that these games matter. And yes, this is a publicly performative mental dissociation from the Iron Bowl, but that's beside the point. Uh, ultimately, ultimately, uh, the truth is that you have these teams, and it seems like there's a big gap difference between them, but there's really not. People have uh, murderous intentions about the results of these rivalry games, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of similarities between them. That is an example of a phenomenon that Sigmund Freud called the narcissism of small differences. And I don't agree with everything that Mr. Freud said, but I think he hit the uh, nail on the head with the narcissism of small differences. Basically, it's the idea that you have these two groups of people who share way more in common than that pull them apart and divide them. There should be more driving them together than dividing them. Like, like Alabamians, for instance, I mean, they all eat white barbecue sauce and watch, you know, listen, excuse me, listen to Leonard Skinner with their shirts off. And at the end of the day, though, they want to hurt each other over the results of a game between the red team and the blue team, just depending on who they identify with. When it comes to like college athletics and, and that sort of thing, it's kind of silly. It's, it's, it's fun to an extent. We enjoy doing it. When it comes to the church, it gets a lot more serious. When these kind of divisions that happen that really aren't necessary, that are ultimately senseless, divide us, it threatens the very mission of the church. We've called this sermon series The Beautiful Church. We've done so because we believe that the church should be beautifully different from the culture that it's situated in. It should be beautifully proclaiming a message of salvation in Christ. It should be bringing life to a dead and dying world. But when we engage in senseless divisions, ultimately it is counterproductive to becoming the beautiful church that God has called us to be. So when Paul is ending this letter here, and he's wrapping it up, this letter to Titus, some of the last things he says have to do with avoiding these kind of senseless, pointless divisions. The reason is he wants this church in Crete to not only become a beautiful church, one that proclaims the gospel, one that is distinct from the culture around it, but one that remains a beautiful church, that continues to do these things. It doesn't let senseless divisions divide it and distract it from its mission. One of our students in, uh, in our equipping class, I gave them the opportunity to write down some questions, pass them in to me for us to discuss at later dates. And one of them asked, why are there so many denominations? Our fracturing, our dividing is visible. It is obvious, and it is uh, ultimately destructive to us. Perhaps, you know, we could talk about like dividing of denominations and all of that. But perhaps you have been in the context of a local church that has experienced deep divisions over senseless issues. And you know the kind of damage that can cause to the ability for that church to do what it is called to do. 
My hope in looking at this passage this morning is that we would be better equipped to withstand the possibility of senseless divisions. So in, in looking at this passage, especially we're going to be spending, pre, not pretty much all of our time really, on these first three verses, verses 9 through 11. In these verses, I want to look at uh, basically three ideas and what I hope will be a very practical look at this section. Uh, I want to see first how to spot senseless divisions. Second, I want to see how to address senseless divisions. And finally, how to prevent senseless divisions, how to spot, address, and prevent these senseless divisions. So let's, let's start here in verse 9. In verse 9, Paul says to Titus, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So essentially, in, these, in this verse, he is contrasting uh, these senseless divisions, these fights that we have with what he said earlier in the book. If you remember last week, if you were here, uh, we, we were able to see um, what it means to avoid these kind of controversies and senseless divisions. And when we're able to live in unity, there is much uh, to be gained from that. There is much profit to be had in that. So verse 8, uh, Paul says, uh, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So in other words, the unity that comes from the gospel proclaimed is profitable, is useful, but these senseless divisions are not. Paul lists four examples of the kind of foolish and senseless divisions that can divide congregations, that people can become uh, embroiled in. He lists foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law is four examples. So based on these four examples, what I want to do is to make four observations about how senseless divisions can come about in a congregation. First one I want to look at follows this idea of, of foolish controversies. First observation I want to make is that senseless divisions are often characterized by foolishness. They're often characterized by foolishness. Some debates and some fights are just really not worth having. Like, for instance, you can take uh, a lot of these ideas in culture, right? There are no shortage, if you want to go on social media right now, there are no shortage of foolish controversies to get yourself involved involved in, right? There are all kinds of debates about celebrities and, uh, you know, who they are dating, and, and people argue about this, right? It's a, it's a foolish controversy. There are ultimately things that we can become uh, conflicted over, that we can uh, become uh, involved in dissensions and fights over, that frankly lower our IQ points by even getting involved in them. They're just divisions and fights that are just not worth having. A lot of the times you'll see this happen in churches where they'll fight and argue about things that are not even theological. 
They're not even relevant to the scriptures, not relevant to even to God, not even relevant to like culture or anything. It's just, it's just questions over the building or schedules or uh, when to have this, you know, outside of church event or whatever. These kind of controversies ultimately are foolish, but they are not harmless. They are foolish. They are nonsensical to have. As a, as a kind of thing that would, would generate a lot of heat and, and division in a church. They are foolish, but they are not harmless. Oftentimes, even these foolish, non-theological, non-spiritual uh, controversies can still cause real harm. It calls emotional harm because even if you're fighting over something that doesn't matter, the fact that you're fighting uh, oftentimes will, will, will bring in these feelings of alienation and frustration and anger. And in its worst case, these foolish kind of divisions can grow and, and become a kind of, of spiritual harm where it's not just, man, I'm emotionally hurt by this, but the fact that it's happening in the church ends up breeding doubt ends up breeding frustration and ends up thinking, man, I don't know if I want to be part of this, if this is how this is going to take place. For this reason, we must consider before we engage in, in, in our frustrations, before we, we, we have our, our foolish controversies, we must consider the downstream effects of that. Ultimately, we should avoid these kind of foolish divisions, these things that, that just are complete distractions because there is ultimately real harm that could come from it. So that's one kind of division, one observation we can make about this. But based on what Paul says next, this idea of genealogies, we can also say this. Senseless divisions can be caused by non-scriptural disagreements. Paul says to avoid genealogies. That seems like a strange thing to avoid, to be honest with you. I don't know if you've ever done any of those uh, DNA tests, right? I, I haven't. Um, I've just never seen a lot of... Um, sorry. Um, I've never seen a lot of good. They could come from having one of those in terms of like, I might get some interesting factoids, right? Like, I, like oh, I have some ancestors in Belgium. That's cool. But never, like, a, something really, really meaningful from it. But some people do. Some people really enjoy these tests. They get a lot from knowing where their family background came from, and it, it helps them even see a sense of, like, how they're contributing to their own uh, offspring's legacy, right? It's really meaningful to them. Evidently, uh, these genealogies were in some way really meaningful to the people, at least of Crete. Now, we're not sure exactly what Paul meant when he said genealogies. He said to avoid genealogies. He doesn't give any, like, specifications. Don't avoid, he says, uh, it doesn't say avoid these kind of genealogies. But based on the scholarship that I've read, it appears that our best way of understanding this would be genealogies of people in the Old Testament, the, the great heroes of the people of Israel, like, like David, for instance. I don't have a clue how they were using these genealogies, to be honest with you. I don't know if they were using it to say, hey, this person, this apostle, we think is descended from the line of David, therefore you got to listen to him, or et cetera, et cetera. The point, though, is that they were apparently being divided by it. 
that this was apparently a, a, an important issue for them, and they were dividing over it. And because we don't know exactly how they were using it, it could have raised some important questions, at least important cultural questions. We don't know. The problem is that they were letting something that was not a matter of Scripture divide them. These genealogies might have been passed down uh, traditionally through generations and generations and generations. But ultimately, they were not uh, something that was essential to fight and divide over because it did not come from the voice of God. It was ultimately a tradition of man. Jesus experienced something similar. Uh, we hear about this in Mark 7, 1 through 8. In this passage, Jesus uh, confronts some of the, the Pharisees, or rather the Pharisees confront him, uh, about this practice, this traditional practice. Here in Mark 7, uh, we read this. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that uh, they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and co uh, copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus' disciples here were eating with, it says, unwashed hands. I don't think it means that this was like a question of hygiene, right? That the Pharisees were like, like oh, you People are nasty, right? You don't eat with, uh, you don't wash your hands before you eat. You don't wash your cups. I think it was a very particular kind of washing, a ritual washing that symbolized cleanness. I am sure that this was incredibly important to the Pharisees. I am sure that this tradition had been passed down through generation. I'm sure that it symbolized something very important. The problem with it is that they were teaching it as if it came directly from God himself. They were elevating something that was important, but non-scriptural, to the level of a divine command. They were saying, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord had not said that at all. Ultimately, we as a congregation can allow the same or a similar thing to happen we take things that are really important, not just to us, but things that are just really important, things like, like politics or, or cultural issues, and we elevate our opinions on those, whether they you know, uh, be, regardless of the level of importance or a level of sureness about it, we elevate them to the level of a divine command, to the level of something being proclaimed by God himself. And ultimately, while we're asking important questions, while this is an important issue, when we allow things that are not Scripture to divide us, 
Ultimately, it's a senseless division because we are allowing something to divide us that we don't have to. When Martin Luther uh, split from the Catholic Church, when he, he had his final break, the problem is that he felt his conscience was constrained by the Word of God. We must hold the Word of God to be central and sacred to us. And there are times where uh, splits are necessary for that reason. But we cannot, we cannot elevate things that are not Scripture to the level of Scripture. For that reason, we have to uh, be intensely focused on Scripture, know them, and be careful in the way that we understand and apply them. So senseless divisions, they can be caused by non-scriptural disagreements, by using these genealogies however precisely they were doing that. Furthermore, senseless divisions can involve factions. Not fractions, factions, uh, although I guess fractions works too, but factions, warring, fighting groups, clearly defined. You've got group A and group B. You've got the, the red team and the blue team, whose names still shall not be named. You've got these two distinct groups fighting against one another. This, it appears, happens throughout the New Testament. This word that Paul uses here, dissensions, usually when he's using it, he's referring to rival and fighting groups, groups that are contesting one another and vying for control of the church. Uh, we see an example of kind of how this would happen as a, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 1, you see these rival and warring groups uh, emerge and come into conflict with one another. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verses uh, 10 through 17, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, there were clearly defined groups that were emerging in this Corinthian church. One group saying, I follow Paul, another Apollos, or Cephas, or Christ. You have all of these different groups saying, I follow this person. They were allowing themselves to become fragmented and divided into specific groups that warred with one another. When a church gets to the point where there are tribes emerging in it, that there are distinct units vying for control of the church, where these dissensions come about, that is where a church becomes in danger of a senseless divide. Ultimately, we are all united under the same Lord and Savior. We have the same king. We have the same master. We are not working as different groups against one another. Rather, what 
binds us together, what ties us together, is the very death and life of Jesus Christ. We are united in him. And for that reason, we should avoid segmenting ourselves off, uh, growing uh, dissensions among ourselves. We must be centered on Christ and not divide ourselves into these, uh, these factions. Ultimately, doing so is a senseless, a pointless division. So that's another observation that we can make, that these divisions can involve factions. The last thing to note is that senseless divisions can be caused by false teachings. By false teachings. So Paul tells Titus to avoid quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So he says to avoid these quarrels about the law. So this one we have a bit more information about. We have a bit more understanding of what this kind of controversy over the law would look like because we have examples in Acts 15 and Galatians 2 and how that kind of happened. Oftentimes, this was a question over circumcision, whether someone must be circumcised to become part, essentially, of the people of Israel and keep the law in addition to being saved by faith in Christ. The question is, must they be a part of the people of Israel? Ultimately, this was a matter of importance for Paul, right? He understood the seriousness of this. In fact, he got into a conflict with Peter about it in Galatians 2. The church at this time experienced this this fragmenting and this dividing over this question of the law. And ultimately, it was a matter of false teaching, It was a matter of saying, of of declaring that a person must keep the law to have faith in Christ. This was repudiated in Acts 15, and the apostles clearly taught against it. This was a matter of false teaching. False teaching brings about a couple of troubling realities. First, false teaching can deeply divide. False teaching can deeply divide. Because oftentimes false teaching is dealing with questions of the eternal state of a person's soul. It creates immense anxiety in people of thinking, man, I don't know, like I can't be wrong about this. I've got to be right. I've got to be on the right path with this. So maybe I need to give this person a good shot here. Maybe I need to really listen to them and hear what they're saying. I I don't uh, want to be led astray and I don't want to lose my soul. For that reason, false teaching can deeply divide. Another thing that's troubling about questions of false teaching that can emerge in churches or uh, even outside the church to some extent is that false teaching raises crucial questions. It raises crucial questions. This question over whether a person must keep the law to truly be right with God is a crucial question. It is. It's, it, was, it was addressed and solved here early in the church's life. And so it's not one that we debate often, usually today. But it's an important question. And likewise, all kinds of other false teachings and heresies throughout the church have raised important questions. We'll talk about those in our equipping class uh, in the next few weeks. There are important questions that are raised by false teaching. For this reason, this idea about the quarrels about the law is a bit different from the rest of the list because it's a bit more serious. It's a matter of more urgent uh, importance. 
Here, I think we need to give a couple of words. Number one, false teaching is not something that should be occurring in the church. For that reason, it's senseless for it to happen. When false teaching emerges in the church, the response, when it's truly false teaching, the response is not, hey, let's, let's see if we can, we can work this out, but it's, hey, you have departed from Christ. We're giving you a warning, but we might have to let you go. That is a very serious conversation, but it comes from a very serious issue. It, is, it comes from teaching willfully what the church has declared to be wrong and out of step with the gospel. Another thing to note about this is that there is a big difference between false teaching and asking questions. There's a huge gap between that, right? Uh, so quarrels about the law implies that there is someone already starting the fight about the law. In the same way, when someone is objectively straightforward teaching against, against the truth of the gospel, we must differentiate that from saying, hey, I had this question about this passage over here. Do you think we could talk about that? Entirely different scenario. So I think that's important to note as well. For this reason, addressing false teaching should be ultimately a senseless division. It shouldn't happen. People shouldn't be led astray in that way. So, spotting the senseless division, we can make these four observations about what senseless divisions look like. But, what do senseless divisions do? What comes as a result of these kind of divisions? Why must they be avoided? Well, the first reason is that senseless divisions uh, cause misrepresentation of the gospel. They misrepresent the gospel. As we talked about last week, so I won't spend a lot of time on this, the gospel should unite us. There should be a distinction in us, in our, our unity that we have. There should be a distinction in, between, in, in our unity that, that shows us as, as being different from the world because the gospel has been at work in us. But when we divide over the law, we lose that opportunity. We lose that distinction from the world. So in 2020, I feel like we had a great opportunity, and not just our congregation, but the body of Christ, right, the church, to display remarkable unity. And I feel like we missed that opportunity. Uh, truthfully, I feel like we missed that opportunity to display immense unity. I think it's easy to be on the other side of that and say, man, I'm glad that's over. Glad we don't have to deal with that again. But what we have to be aware of is that's probably not going to be the last opportunity to display unity. So what I hope is that we can learn and grow and be equipped and ready for the next time that opportunity comes to be able to display true gospel unity so that we would not be found to be misrepresenting the gospel through senseless divisions, but we would be united in Christ and displaying his worth. So that's one way, uh, that's one thing that a senseless division can do. Second thing is that senseless divisions can cause mission drift, can cause mission drift. I don't know if you've heard of the idea of mission drift, it's kind of self-explanatory in the name, but it's when an organization kind of drifts off from the purpose uh, that it was created for, the thing that it's supposed to be doing, right? So an example of that might be like the, the World uh, Wildlife uh, Fund, I think. Uh, anyway, it eventually, it, 
at its founding, it was created to preserve uh, the, these endangered species, but over time it has drifted in a more humanitarian direction, like protecting indigenous people's rights and relieving poverty, which, you know, great task that they're undertaking, but it's different from their original mission. When that happens with a nonprofit or a corporation or something like that, it's like, okay, sure, maybe someone else will come in and, and fill the void. When it happens with the church, it's devastating. When we lose sight of our mission, when we lose sight of our purpose to make the gospel known, the results can be devastating. When mission drift happens, ultimately, it is distracting. It, it, where, excuse me, when these senseless divisions happen, they are distracting, right? Like if you're a teacher, you understand this, right? Like you've got two students that are spatting, they're fighting, you're trying to do a group project and they won't talk to each other, they're literally just sitting there. And you go and you ask them what's wrong and, and Olivia and Annalise give you a long story about how they're fighting, about Olivia having her phone taken away and telling Annalise and Annalise wasn't supposed to tell anyone, but she did and now they're angry with each other. And that's not your problem, you're just trying to teach the three branches of government. But you have to solve this issue to be able to get on to what you're trying to do. When we are embattled in senseless divisions, it takes our time, it takes our resources, and it prevents us from being on the mission that Christ gave us. It causes mission drift by distracting, and it's deceptive. It can deceive us when we are in these fights and dissensions. It can deceive us into thinking that we are growing, that we are making real progress, when ultimately we aren't. We have this, this idea, which is, is a true idea, which is that sometimes proclaiming truth comes through and comes with conflict. And so we do the inverse of that, and we think, well, if we're having conflict, we must be because we're proclaiming truth, and we're standing up for what's right, and we're growing and making progress. If it's one of these senseless divisions, that's not progress. That's not growth. That's not moving towards the truth of the gospel of Scripture. Ultimately, that is a senseless division that, that ends up taking all of your time and making yourself think, man, we are, we are really growing here when ultimately we're just spending our resources in senseless division when we could be, uh, could be acting in the mission of the gospel together. So we see how to spot these senseless divisions. Mm. To go through these next two rather quickly, we begin here with how to address senseless divisions. What do we do when they arise? So this is verses 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So before we get into exactly how to address this, how to address this uh, senseless division that can kind of arise, I want to just bring out just a few reasons. There, there's way more reasons that can come about than this. But just three reasons why we might ultimately uh, become engaged in these senseless divisions. Why we as individual people might end up getting in these arguments and fights. The first is that we might have trouble differentiating between gospel issues and personal issues. We elevate things that personally frustrate us to a level of endangering the gospel. When sometimes it's just not there. It's just not that strong. 
This requires a bit of maturity in understanding what the gospel is and understanding what the message of faith is. And we have to be able to differentiate when it is a matter of true gospel urgency and when it's a matter of personal, uh, personal urgency, a matter of personal importance. We might also, we might end up just being caught up in a larger conflict, whether that be a cultural conflict or a conflict within the church. We didn't intend to be a part of a division, but it happened. We might also just have an unhealthy attachment to controversy. This, some people get along through life in constant kind of controversy and fights. And so when the opportunity for a fight arises, they take it because they're so used to operating that way. There are many reasons, ultimately, why a person may be involved in these kind of senseless divisions. But regardless for the reason, the process for addressing it is the same. The first, the first way to address these senseless divisions is preventative. That is, to avoid them, right? That's the first thing that Paul says in verse 9. He says to avoid these things, as in don't do them. We want to avoid these senseless divisions in the sense that we avoid starting senseless divisions, right? We don't want to be the people going around uh, engaging, beginning fights, beginning foolish controversies, or starting factions, or, uh, or, or starting fights over things that are not essential to the gospel. We don't want to begin or start these kind of senseless fights and divisions. We also don't want to engage with them. We want to avoid engaging in senseless divisions. Someone, sometime, when you're in life group, might make a crazy comment. It might be totally off the wall. It might even be critical of our church or something like that. You don't always have to engage in that. You don't have to reply. You don't have to give a comment. Sometimes doing so actually just fans the flame. Sometimes things just, someone makes a comment, they've had a bad day, or they've misunderstood things, perhaps. It happens, and then it goes away. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's best to just avoid engaging in these things. I think that's what Paul has in mind when he tells Titus to avoid these things. To not spend all of your time and resources in constant fights, but when possible, when, uh, when available to you, to avoid doing so. Ultimately, though, that is not always possible. It's not always the right thing to do. It's not always possible. It's not always wise. And so he also gives a process for pursuing a senseless divider, pursuing and hopefully, uh, hopefully restoring someone who is engaged in this kind of senseless division. Essentially, Paul gives a three-strike policy. He says, ask for a person who stirs up division, warn him once, and then twice, then have nothing more to do with him. It is ultimately a, uh, it is ultimately a, a policy that is meant to help restore a church, to help uh, correct a person who is engaging in this kind of senseless infighting and division. This process, as Paul describes it, ultimately is first remedial. By that, I, meant, I mean that it's meant to restore a person. It's meant to uh, bring them back to where they were. 
This word that he uses, warning, uh, is often used in the context of a, of a young person um, being trained by their parents. It's used in like a parenting context or sometimes in like an educational context, right? So it's more like a, a redirection than a like, uh, hey, buddy, we, let me let's sit down. We go out to have a talk kind of situation. It's, a, it's an educational moment. It's an occasion to correct things. It's meant to restore people, not punish them. So this process, it should be focused on restoring a person, getting them out of this kind of conflict and, and back into a harmonious relationship with the church. This process ultimately also is fair. It is a fair process. And by that, I mean giving a three-strike policy for a person who is stirring up division is plenty generous. The idea that a person would willfully continue to stir up division three times indicates that it is, uh, it is not ultimately unintentional, it is not uh, just an incident, it's not uh, from a lack of understanding, but it comes from a place of trying, attending to stir up divisions. When that has happened, when you've reached that point, that person is self-condemned. They have demonstrated what is in their own heart. They have ultimately shown uh, their, their own uh, beliefs and actions to be, uh, to be truly um, intentionally divisive. This ultimately is a special responsibility for elders to go through this process of pursuing someone, restoring them, warning them, all of this. So for that reason, I want to give a special charge special challenge to our elders, to the ones who are serving now, who uh, will continue serving next year, who will begin serving next year. And it's this question. Are you willing to go through this process with somebody? Are you willing to do this? I think this is an important question for me, right, that I've asked myself this week. If this situation arose, would I be willing to step in? The answer ultimately must be yes. We're, we're in a must situation. The unity of the church for proclaiming the mission, for, for doing the mission, for proclaiming the gospel, it's too important to just kind of leave by the wayside. So it's a special responsibility for elders. But ultimately, we all have a responsibility for preventing senseless division. So we move now to how to prevent these things. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that if I, I could sit up here and, and just rant about senseless divisions until, until you had to carry me off in a gurney to North Mississippi Medical Center, um, I, we could have the, the best preaching um, in, in the state, we could have uh, the most, most generally unified uh, church, we could have a beautiful gospel culture. No matter what, ultimately, these senseless divisions will arise. My hope is that we can take some practices to prevent this from, uh, from arising in our hearts and some practices to help deal with it when the time comes. So there's two things I want to note here. First, we must learn to differentiate the voices inside of us. We must learn to hear the voices that speak, not literally, right, but like the, the, where these ideas that come in our heads, where they come from. Whose voice is speaking? Is it, is it the voice of Christ? Is it, is it our own sinfulness? Where is it coming from? So, for instance, when it comes to questions of avoiding these kind of conflicts and, and being, taking a more passive approach, 
We must learn to differentiate between the voice of prudence, which says it is wise not to avoid or not to engage in this, to avoid engaging in it, and the voice of cowardice that avoids engaging for our own self-interest. We must be able to hear that within ourselves. Why am I seeking to avoid this conflict? Is it for their good? Is it for the church's good? Or is it for my own personal good? Likewise, when we we go in this process of pursuing others, we must learn to differentiate between a voice of courage that says, I need to pursue this person despite my not wanting to, and a voice of dissension that says, I want to pursue this person because I want conflict, or in some way it's going to make me happy to fight with this person or pursue this person or disagree with them. We must learn to differentiate those voices the one of the Holy Spirit that, that calls us to do it for the betterment of others in our church, and the one that says to act for our own self-interest. And last of all, we must be able to differentiate between the vo- voices of culture and of Christ. Culture seeks to divide people, seeks to divide us, seeks to divide uh, culture at large, right? Um, we were, Paige and I were watching a movie this past week, um, and one of the main characters, he is a marketing consultant from New York, and he's called in to this, uh, this union meeting for Christmas tree growers. And he is tasked with trying to, uh, to come up with a way to get more people to buy real Christmas trees. And he said, no, you don't want to just go and approach this like, hey, uh, growing a Christmas tree is a great, or having a homegrown Christmas tree is just it's a great traditional family event. Is what you want to do instead is start a culture war and call, accuse all the people who are buying artificial trees of being fake Christmas haters, right, that are just trying to get through the Christmas season as quick as they can. The truth is, there are a lot of people that are, unfortunately, I, I say this with a lot of sadness, invested in dividing us, invested in dividing people in general. We must be able to differentiate the voice of culture that seeks to divide us, that stirs up anger and frustration in our fellow man, and that of Christ, which calls us to be unified and to act together in the gospel. Speaking of, last thing to note here is that we must maintain a dogged devotion to Jesus. We must be devoted to him above anything and everything else. To do that, we call us first to meditate and to hold fast to Scripture, to know what it says, to know what God has spoken, because it is there we meet and know our Savior. I would call us to meditate on the gospel, to think clearly about what it means that Jesus has saved us, that he has redeemed us, so that we can have our our hearts fixed on that and know what is most important and most central the salvation that comes through Christ's death and resurrection. Last of all, I would say to imitate Christ. As we look to the scriptures, to his conduct, to his actions, as we meditate on the gospel and consider what he's done for us, just as these these earlier verses that we read uh, later, thinking about what Christ has done for us, what patience, what mercy he has given to us, The last thing I would say is to imitate that, to follow his example of of steadfast love, of patient endurance, 
of uh, giving of self, ultimately so that we can be further and greater united in him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are people of the gospel. We're people that are united in the fact that Christ has redeemed us all. I pray that we would not just be united in a theological way. And and knowing that we're redeemed and we're brought together and we're we're constituted as this church here, as a church at Trace Crossing. But further, O Lord, that we would act in such a way that displays that unity, that shows the beauty of the gospel. And I pray that you would help us to do that all uh, to your glory, for your benefit, and for your church's growth, and for the execution of this great and wonderful mission you've given us. It would be a beautiful church in this way, in our unity together. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.